Welcome to Tales of History and Imagination. Eccentric Tales from History by Simone Whitlock. Today's tale opens on January 14th, 1950. The location? West Point Military Academy. Perched atop a bank on the Hudson River, around 80 kilometers north of New York City, West Point began its life as a fort from which to repel the English in the American War of Independence. Post-war, it became the USA's first military training school. To the joy of first president, George Washington, but much to the chagrin of future third president, Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson believed America shouldn't even have a standing army, let alone an academy to turn their posh kids into trained killers. Like it or not, the school launched under his presidency in 1802. Over time, the academy would churn out numerous generals, 76 Medal of Honor recipients, 70 Rhodes Scholars, 20 astronauts, a handful of professional footballers, even two US presidents, Ulysses S. Grant and Dwight D. Eisenhower. Our star of last fortnight's episode, the writer Edgar Allan Poe, attended the Academy for just under seven months of his proposed four-year stay. He was court-martialed out of the place for neglecting his duties and disobeying orders in 1831. This tale's protagonist, a young man named Richard Colvin Cox, is about to become notable for a very different reason. Earlier in the day, Cox had attended a basketball game between the army and nearby Rutgers University. After the game, he went to check on exam results and tried to talk one of his roommates into going into town for a few drinks. At some point in the afternoon, he was seen speaking with a rough-looking, dark-haired man. Returning to his barracks that afternoon, Cox announced he was going out for a meal to catch up with a mysterious friend. At 4.45pm, he signed out of the Company B2 departure book. Despite it being a Saturday, the Academy had strict expectations. Its young officers in training must be back no later than 11pm. Richard Cox was not back by 11 that night. His disappearance would spark one of the biggest manhunts in American history. Richard Colvin Cox would go down in history as the only cadet ever to disappear without a trace from West Point. Well, almost without a trace. Before we get too far into that, we should first introduce the protagonist. Aged just 21 when he disappeared, Richard Colvin Cox was born 25th of July 1928 in Mansfield, Ohio. The family were adherents of Mary Baker Eddy's Christian Science Movement. Richard was the youngest of the six children. When Richard was 10 years old, his father Rupert passed away from untreated diabetes. As Christian scientists believe illness to be a problem with perception, to be prayed away, the family never sought medical assistance for his ailments. This left his mother Minnie widowed and in sole charge of the family business, an insurance company. 
Richard graduated high school in 1946, joining the United States Constabulary, an armed forces peacekeeping force that was stationed in Germany following World War II. Stationed in Coburg and then Schweinfurt, he reached the rank of sergeant. In January 1948, he was one of a lucky few to win a place at West Point Academy. As per the rules of West Point, one of which at the time stated all cadets must be single men. Richard was unmarried, but was in a long-term, long-distance relationship with his high school sweetheart, a woman named Betty Timmons. He was certainly no dummy. He was ranked around 100th place in his class of 500 cadets, although it was said he struggled in his Russian language studies. On January 7, 1950, a phone call came through to the barracks. The phone was picked up by the charge of quarters, a young man called Peter Haynes. The call was for Richard, and the caller's tone, apparently rough and condescending, when advised he wasn't there. The man may have given his name as George, stating he and Richard had served together in Germany. At 5.30pm, the man showed up at Grant Hall, a building where the public could meet up with the cadets. Witnesses state the two men met like old friends and seemed to be happy to see one another. Richard signed out, noting he was going out for a meal at a hotel. On returning to the barracks that night, Richard fell into a drunken slumber across a writing desk. His roommates took a photo of him in what likely became his last photograph. He slept off his inebriation until shocked wide awake by the nightly bugle call blasting through the loudspeakers at 10.30pm. Shocked bolt upright, he ran from the room, leant over the banner and called into the dark. Who's down there? Is Alice down there? The next morning, Richard opened up to his roommates about the night before in The Mystery Man, only referring to the man as his friend. He shared that they had never got to the restaurant. The two men sat in George's car, drinking from a bottle of whiskey. As the day went on, Richard told them he knew the mystery man from his time stationed in Germany. The man had been a U.S. Army Ranger. He bragged about killing Nazis and then castrating them post-mortem. Far more concerning. He got a German girl pregnant and then allegedly murdered her to avoid the burden of fatherhood. Richard admitted the man scared the life out of him, and that he hoped he'd never have to see him again. On 14th of January, Richard was going out for dinner, with the man will continue to call George. He left in uniform, leaving all his civilian clothes, a prized gold watch, and a sum of $87 in cash and an uncashed check, around about $900 today. The following morning, with no sign of his return, his roommates reported him missing. An alert was put out across the eastern seaboard, and the cadet was declared absent without leave. The police, military, and eventually the FBI were drawn into the search. The campus, much of its 16,000 acres heavily wooded, and at that time of year covered in snow, was scoured with a fine tooth comb. Searchers dragged the Hudson River and the Lusk Reservoir. 
A large pond on campus was completely drained. Now there were technically two descriptions of George. One putting him at just under six feet tall with short blonde hair and a round face. And the other of a rough looking dark haired man. All of Cox's former army colleagues were compared to the descriptions. Anyone remotely matching the descriptions was questioned. All had alibis of the time Richard went missing. One day, his two roommates were picked up by a police car and taken to Greenwich Village's gay bars. One lead emerged, suggesting Richard was gay or bisexual. If so, had the pressures of a devoutly religious family and the lavender scare, the moral panic around gay people that ran hand in hand with the red scare, led to him just cutting loose and running. The Lavender Scare didn't really pick up momentum for another couple of months, but the laws which allowed the government to fire thousands of federal employees just for their sexual orientation had been updated for this purpose in 1947. The Alger Hiss case, where Hiss, a lawyer, former government official and former member of the Communist Party, was sent to jail for perjury on the testimony of one Whitaker Chambers and evidence from Richard Nixon, allegedly found in a pumpkin, was also wrapping up at the time of the disappearance. Now it's a long digression, but Hiss was accused of being in a communist spiring, but could only be nailed on the two charges of perjury. His accuser, Chambers, claimed the men knew each other through communist networks and the Hiss was a spy. Much was made of the allegations that both men were gay, and that Chambers was acting up due to his unrequited love for Hiss. This was a dominant narrative until then-Congressman Richard Nixon showed up with microfilm of classified documents stolen way back in the late 1930s. They were found hidden in a hollowed-out pumpkin on Chambers' farm. This all lent weight to the allegation that gay people were easily blackmailed and as such too easily turned into assets by the Reds to hold important government jobs. Digression aside, the roommates caught no sight of mysterious George and nobody in the bars recognised Richard from his photograph. On campus, besides the large sum of money, watch and all of Richard's civilian clothes, they found two unposted letters to his fiancée, Betty. In those letters, he complained about how much he hated West Point and that he'd only stayed there to keep his mother happy. In one letter, he wondered if he shouldn't just quit, move back in with his mother in Mansfield, Ohio, and study business or insurance for the next couple of years. A few weeks later, a letter Richard had sent in December to a woman living in Germany named Rosemary Vogel, came back as undeliverable. In this letter, Richard states the two had met in Germany and asked a number of questions about what the Russians were up to in Russian-occupied East Germany. Rosemary, unbeknownst to Richard, had married an American soldier and moved to the USA. She only remembered Richard's friend when questioned. With all the usual suspects rounded up, and all leads seemingly followed, Richard Cox's disappearance was supplanted in a news cycle by other stories. 
seven years after he disappeared, he was officially declared deceased. But over the years, a couple of people continued to think about the case from time to time, and a few of them investigated further. And this is where things get truly strange. For a start, it later came to light that of all the alleged sightings of Richard since he went missing, two were taken very seriously. The first sighting was reported by a man named Ernest Shotwell in 1954. Shotwell knew Richard, having briefly met him at an army preparatory school in 1948. The two men both applied for West Point, but Shotwell's exam results were too low to gain entrance. On flunking out, he joined the Coast Guard. In March 1952, Shotwell was at a Greyhound bus station restaurant when he saw a familiar face. He claims he recognised Richard sitting there alone at another table. He sat down next to his old friend, who claimed he'd returned to base and then resigned his post. He was working for himself now, but was very vague as to what he was doing exactly. Richard was nervous, took off as soon as he could. When Cox's name came back up in the media two years later, Shotwell reported the encounter to authorities. The other sighting came by way of the FBI. In May 1960, an FBI informant was at the Showbar Tavern in Melbourne, Florida, to meet with a colleague identified in their notes as Ali. The identities of these figures has never really been revealed, or the reason for their meeting. But as the two talked, a friend of Ali's, who called himself R.C. Mansfield, took a seat alongside her. The three talked, and R.C. opened up to the informant as the night wore on. The informant shared he was a former Marine. Mansfield stated he used to be in the military too. But as far as the army, or even his own mother knew, he was dead. He stated his surname was Cox and that he had connections to Cuba. Mansfield shared with the others that Fidel Castro would not be in power terribly much longer. This was, of course, just under a year before the USA attempted to spark a revolution via the disastrous Bay of Pigs invasion. Now, the FBI was very interested in this mysterious man. They tried to arrange a second meeting, but Mansfield never showed up. Much of this information came to light in 1982, when an Ohioan journalism professor, then a reporter, named Jim Underwood, wrote a 12-part series on the mystery. Bolstering the FBI story, a former school friend named Ralph Johns shared with Underwood he'd followed the case closely for years. Johns claimed he knew an FBI agent called Vince Napoli, who once told him Cox faked his own death and started a new life, and that they were about a day away from arresting him, when word came down from above to step back and never bother Richard again. Napoli couldn't say where the order had come from, other than it had come from somewhere very high up, outside of the FBI. Now this might be written off as a tall tale, but for the fact that Johns was a respected lawyer who later became a judge. Another researcher was a retired school teacher named Marshall Jacobs. 
Jacobs followed various leads that suggested Cox may have been recruited as a spy. First, there was a tidbit from a man named John H. Noble. Noble was an American-born, Dresden-based son of a businessman. Originally from Detroit, Michigan, the family had a factory that made cameras, and whatever their political beliefs, decided to stay and tough out World War II in Germany. By war's end, they found themselves living in a Soviet-occupied city. Noble and his father were accused of espionage. It is believed because the Soviets wanted to commandeer their business from them. Noble ultimately spent a decade in Russia's gulag system, the last five years in a camp called Vokuta, which sat above the Arctic Circle in northern Siberia. Once freed in 1955, he claimed there was an American named Cox held captive in Vorkuta. Jacobs also claimed he was contacted by a former high-ranking CIA official in the 1990s who told him Cox was recruited into military intelligence and was sent back to Germany. For a decade, he took on a number of dangerous missions including smuggling two Russian scientists out from behind the Iron Curtain. He served his country with distinction, and that agent was only now sharing this information as Richard, now living under an assumed name, was terminally ill in a hospice facility in Bethesda, Maryland. The other man Jacobs believed was key to this tale was a former soldier named David Westervelt, Westervelt had served with Cox in Germany and was reputedly a recruiter for the CIA in the 1950s. Jacob suggested he was a mysterious George. When Richard shared with him just how miserable he was at West Point, he offered him a way out. If Westervelt were George, he's hardly able to confirm or deny, as he apparently died in 1969. But without evidence... This is all, curious as it may be, supposition. And besides, David Westervelt was hardly the only viable suspect for George. Another man served with Cox was in New York at the time of his disappearance, and also closely fit the description. To tell his tale, we need to fast forward to August 1985, to a very big boat in Canadian waters. Muriel Barnett, a 79-year-old American socialite, was found bludgeoned to death in her rented penthouse suite on board the Norwegian cruise ship Royal Viking Star. A personal assistant of 20 years, Robert Frisby, was the only other person in the room at the time, and as such was charged with her murder. He would claim he had a mother-son relationship with Muriel, were not consciously of murder, but they were the only two people in the suite at the time. Muriel was beaten to death by a wine bottle, and Frisbee had both Muriel's blood and wine stains all over his clothing. Frisbee claimed he'd been a heavy alcoholic for most of his life, a sit in a car with an old friend, and down a bottle of whiskey between them in three hours kind of alcoholic. He'd given up drinking earlier in the year, but had fallen off the wagon on the cruise. 
He may have hoped people believed he was blackout drunk when it happened, but there was a complicating factor. He was apparently a long-term lover of the widow Barnett's corporate attorney husband, Philip. Philip died of a heart attack in 1984, leaving Frisbee $250,000 in the will. Some got held up on a snag. Frisbee would get $500,000, $250,000 from each employer, but only on Muriel's passing. The jury found Frisbee guilty of second-degree murder. Frisbee died in prison in 1991. He was tried and sentenced under his old name, Robert Dion. Dion was a former soldier who had served alongside Richard in Germany. Stateside, he'd come out of a closet and worked as a hairdresser in New York. But struggling to pay the bills, he made extra money creating false identities for other people. He was, like Westervelt, a very good physical fit for George. At the time Richard Cox disappeared, Robert made a new identity for himself and skipped town. Soon after, he reappeared in San Francisco as Robert Frisbee. Now, there is very little certainty to any of this, and as far as I'm aware, with around 160 pages from the approximately 1,500 pages on the case that have been released, well, they were redacted, so ultimately, who knows what was in there. I don't know if either Westervelt or Frisbee were on record for bragging to others of castrating dead Nazis or murdering pregnant teenagers. And for all that, I'm sure a thousand other unknown possibilities exist. But if the only two options were Richard Cox faked his death to become a spy, or Richard Cox met a grisly end at the hands of a sociopathic multiple murderer, I'd err on the side of a homicidal maniac. Based solely on the presumption, if one sends a spy into Russian territory, one doesn't send a guy who's struggling with his Russian language lessons. But with reams of redacted information still to come to light, and DNA able to unlock a lot of impenetrable doors these days, you never know. One day we might find out what happened to Richard Colvin Cox. Thank you for listening. This has been Tales of History and Imagination. All episodes written and narrated by me, Simone Whitlow. All music, yours truly. Visit the show at historyandimagination.com. You can follow me on social media, links in the show notes get access to exclusive bonus content via my Patreon, also in the notes. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a like on your podcatcher of choice and share the episode as word of mouth is the best way to help shows like this grow. See you back in two weeks' time for more tales of history and imagination.